Our solar system is a wondrous place with a single star, our sun, and everything that orbits around it, planets, moons, asteroids, and comets. What do we know about this beautiful solar system we call home? It's part of an even larger cosmos with billions of other solar systems. Hi, I'm Jim Green, Director of Planetary Science at NASA, and this is Gravity Assist. And I'm Lori Cantillo with the Science Division here at NASA Headquarters, and we're going to do something a little different today to launch Season 2 of Gravity Assist. We're talking about mind-blowing science discoveries, and one of them happened 60 years ago with our Explorer 1 mission, which revealed these intense radiation belts that we have around Earth. They're called Van Allen belts. It's a cool story, so to tell it, we're going to turn the tables on our host, Jim Green, and find out about his gravity assist. That's the term we use to describe an event or a person in your life who helped you figure out what you really love to do and forever changed your path in life. So, Jim Green, what was your gravity assist? Well, thanks, Lori. You've done a, a fabulous job uh, helping me with our gravity assist interviews over the this first season, and and I'm delighted to be able to kick off the the second season uh, and talk about some of my experiences. It, my gravity assist really started in high school. I had a high school chemistry teacher who ended up with the keys of an observatory, a donated telescope. Turned out it was a 12-inch Alvin Clark refractor. And uh, for you amateur astronomers out there, I'm sure your jaws have dropped. And they still was, make those? <laughs> no, Alvin, <laughs> I didn't Al, think so. Alvin has gone out of business. <laughs> oh. But uh, I think this was made in probably uh, the 30s. Okay. Yeah, in the 30s. Uh, 1936 or so, I think, is when it was made. But uh, this particular telescope, fabulous telescope. I had I had it at my beck and call for, for a couple years uh, in high school. And, and I made instruments for it. I, I studied stars. I studied the planets. I, I took pictures that ended up in sky and telescope. Um, and I took images of the sun every day for three months during one summer and three months during another summer. And so at the end of my high school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And that was uh, get into college and get a degree in astronomy. But that didn't end there. You know, uh, many of our scientists, as, as you've heard uh, in the many of our other podcasts, they've had multiple gravity assists along the way. And my next one really started um, uh, my uh, first year at the University of Iowa. And I was born and raised in Burlington, Iowa. It's just a small town uh, on the Mississippi. And, and um, University of Iowa was uh, the, one of the big universities in, in Iowa. And uh, I took Astronomy 101 with about 400 other students. <laughs> I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the place was packed. I walked in the first day and, you know, and, and the only places available were up front. <laughs> Uh-oh. Yeah, so I had to that's sit what you get. Front. Well, I always enjoyed sitting up front. Uh, you know, I wear glasses and so my eyes aren't really that cool, that good. So I, 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 would, uh, I would indeed sit up front. But uh, it was taught by uh, James Van Allen. And, uh, Whoa, the... Yeah, the James Van Allen, and, and, and we'll learn more about him because, uh, indeed, uh, he was the first uh, investigator of our first experiment ever in space on the spacecraft Explorer 1. So at the end of first semester of Astronomy 101, 
I got an A. Thank goodness. There was only you, know, yeah. <laughs> you better have uh, yeah, planetary no, right. science director getting less than an A. I don't think so. Well, the, you know, I wasn't always uh, always great in school. You know, the ups and downs happen, and we always have mm-hmm. to remember you gotta you gotta stay the course. But um, second semester, I had an opportunity to take a small two two credit hour course. And uh, so I took readings in astronomy and it was taught by staff. You know, that's what it says in the course catalog. And, and so when the course started at, at, at a designated time in, in Van Allen Hall, room 10701, uh, I went to that room, opened the door, and it looked like a warehouse. It was this huge room, <laughs> printouts all over tables, magnetic tapes and bookcases and, you know, a cluttered room from that perspective, a storeroom. That's what she, you know, these rooms were storerooms. And I'm standing in the doorway, you know, going through this course catalog, figuring out why did I must have messed up. <laughs> Wrong place. Wrong room. <laughs> Wrong right? time. Right. <laughs> and so from behind the bookcase, Dr. Van Allen said, uh, Jim, uh, this is the place and you're my only student. And so instead of being taught by a grad student, uh, I had a full semester with James Van Allen. And when he found out that I had taken pictures uh, with an Alvin Clark refractor, and in particular the solar set, it was during uh, during solar maximum uh, in the late 60s, early 70s, and, uh, and, and he said, wow, let's do some things. Let's do some research with this data. And I go, research? Wow. What's research? <laughs> So um, uh, we talked about it. I showed him the data. He loved it. And, and um, uh, you know, the big suggestion uh, that came from him is, is why don't you look at uh, how fast the sun spins? Let's do, let's do that by looking at the sunspots and how long it takes for them to go around. And indeed, uh, I had plenty of data to make measurements of uh, a solar rotation. And um, uh, I, uh, I did the same research that had been done about 70 years earlier and wrote a science paper, just, you know, introduction and discussions and abstracts and all the stuff, uh, comp, uh, components of a paper. And he was the referee. And so at the end of, um, end of that semester, uh, indeed, I knew, uh, I knew what research was all about. And, 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 and that gravity assist was absolutely unbelievable. It's, it's cool how many uh, people will cite teachers as being that, that gravity assist. And uh, good for you. Well, I'm certainly glad that you took that class. Yeah, me too. But that connects really well with what this year is all about. This is the 60th anniversary of NASA. Okay. And it really kicks off with our first successful spacecraft called Explorer 1. Now you can get online and you probably uh, go to uh, some of the images that uh, that the uh, National Air and Space Museum posts, and you can see uh, what the Explorer One rocket looks like. It's you know it's about two and a half stories tall, and it's a huge, beautiful rocket that were, that had on top of it a, an experiment, a Geiger-Muller tube that looked at cosmic rays, and and that was Van Allen's experiment. And on the side of it are two letters. The, the, the two huge letters painted on the side, U and E. 
And so um, uh, everyone knows about it. You can see it's very distinctive and and uh, that's the way that goes. Uh, but uh, I finally found out the story behind you. Yeah, like why not you and S? <laughs> <laughs> Could have been. <laughs> uh, so um, uh, here's here's how it goes. Uh, after I graduated from the University of Iowa, I, I ended up at Marshall Space Flight Center at NASA, which is one of the 10 NASA centers. And it's a fabulous place. They do all kinds of things. This is where Von Braun was, and, and they were building uh, the building the uh, uh, a series of rockets. So Van Allen came down. I invited him to give a talk, and, and then I had a big reception over at my house. And, and so I had scientists and engineers from the center, uh, and, and I was walking around with a, a tray of hors d'oeuvres. Okay, so... <laughs> So I walk up to Van, uh, and, and you know, uh, many of us, us students called uh, Dr. Van Allen Van. It was a very endearing term, and he loved it. You know, never, uh, never batted an eye over over that. And so I walked up, and there Van was talking to one of our engineers. Actually, it was my next door neighbor, Jack Wade, who who worked uh, with uh, Von Braun. And I'm standing there. Would you like an hors d'oeuvre? And Jack says, Dr. Van Allen, do you know what U.E. means? So I was, I, wow, I had to hear this, man. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> no, I, great time yeah, great, you know, to I, be I, there. I had seen UE, I, I don't know how many times, but I didn't know what it meant. And, and Dr. Van Allen said, no, I, I don't think I ever knew what that meant. And so Jack says, well, here we are in Huntsville, Alabama. This is where the Redstone Arsenal is. And, and, and currently the Marshall Space Flight Center sits on that. But Marshall hadn't been uh, been put in place at that time. And so uh, Jack said, um, there are nine unique letters in Huntsville. And uh, U is two and E is nine. And so UE is a code for a number 29. Hmm. And Van Allen said, well, why didn't you just put 29 on the rock? <laughs> yeah. and just pay 29. And, and Jack said, well, we didn't want to do that because if we put two nine on the rocket, the, the press would ask us what happened to the other 28. <laughs> One through 28. Yeah, that's that's a good point. And, and the problem with that is they all blew up. And so Van looks at me and I look at him and I'm thinking, thank God, UE didn't blow up. <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> but that's the way it was early on. We were having we were struggling in this nation to be able to build rockets at work and get things into space. A Sputnik had been orbiting the Earth for months earlier. You know, the USSR was celebrating uh, their launch of Sputnik, which occurred on October 4th. And um, uh, that was uh, last uh, uh, last year's celebration. They had their 60th. So in in uh, 1957, Sputnik went up and here we are. In 1958, January 31st, Explorer 1 takes off and gets into orbit. What a fantastic time that was. I mean, the press conference was uh, something like 2.30 in the morning at the National Academy. Wow. And, uh, and that's the very famous picture of you see Dr. Van Allen uh, pickering from uh, uh, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which, which helped build the, build the experiment and, and integrate it. Uh, into the rocket, and then of course von Braun, uh, which got the uh, got the uh, 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 rocket uh, uh, into space. Wow! And they're holding it over their head. They're holding it over, and their... it's uh, how heavy is that? Well, thing? that's the third stage. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the experiment is inside that. Okay, you know, and so you had several stages that are a couple stories tall just to get that little bitty thing into into Jeez. space. Yeah. 
Wow. That's what really launched the space race, you too, did. and the, the whole era. That it was, it was in a sense, the competition that really in, inspired and got people going. But then, the, you know, the fascination that the American public had with, with space exploration really took off. Yeah, Explorer 1 was, uh, was uh, our first uh, successful attempts. And what we found out immediately is that it, is it had things to teach us. It, the data came back. Uh, Van Allen um, uh, also had several other explorers over the next several months uh, to get additional data. And uh, by May of uh, 1958, he was announcing the results of those several instruments, those Geiger-Muller tubes from Explorer 1 through Explorer 3, uh, since two, went, uh, 2 didn't make it into orbit. So Explorer 1 and, and Explorer 3 told us that that there was a set of uh, very high energy particles racing around our magnetic field above our atmosphere. And that was the radiation belt. We call that now the Van Allen radiation belt. So what uh, was that a total surprise or did we kind of theorize ahead of time that there was something going on like that? Yeah, for most of the scientists, I would say nearly everyone, it was a huge surprise. <laughs> like, like so many things. <laughs> yeah. Now, you would think that, you know, that, that um, uh, there, would be, uh, there would be some basis for understanding that, uh, that uh, we would expect to see the, uh, the particles trapped. And there was some, some of the earlier ideas about how particles and magnetic fields interact. If you have a magnetic field that can trap uh, charged particles, they have a tendency to spiral around the magnetic field and don't leave the environment, don't leave the area, and so they can hang around for long periods of time. And um, in fact, there's hints from other planets that they have magnetic fields. And that had been going on for, for many years prior to this. So it's, it's a good thing that Earth has these magnetic fields, correct? These are what protect us from all of this, this space weather, from radiation, from the solar wind. Um, and did we understand that back then at that time, that that's uh, what was the significance of this finding? No, it, that we didn't. We absolutely did not. Uh, uh, it is important that this Earth has a magnetic field. Uh, the magnetic field uh, does trap charged particles, and as the sun uh, heats our atmosphere uh, uh, to the extent where uh, the atmosphere can actually become disassociated into charged particles then, uh, and, and actually evaporate into space, then the magnetic field traps those. And so we have evaporated uh, atmosphere that we call the plasmasphere. It starts out in the ionosphere and goes out into space and it creates another region called the plasmasphere. And that allows us to hang on to our atmosphere for long periods of time. So that's just one effect that the, that the Earth's magnetic field, and, and, uh, and that includes all the other planets that have magnetic fields too. That happens to them. Mars. You know, it lost its magnetic field, and now we know that the solar wind, as it, uh, as it has uh, uh, continued to strip atmosphere out of Mars, and in particular the oxygen that is disassociated from water, from H2O, uh, and the O gets uh, transported and then stripped away, has really, uh, has really changed that planet now into a, a, an arid and um, 
dry place. I find that story fascinating that that scientists now believe that Mars was, you know, back then a very warm and and wet environment. We see evidence of canals and flowing water uh, that that once was on the the surface of Mars. And uh, I guess the obvious question is, do people wonder if this kind of process could happen here on Earth, for example? Are we studying that as well? Indeed, you know, we do uh, compare our planets. Uh, Venus is another one that's Earth size. It doesn't have a magnetic field. And although its atmosphere is extremely dense, you know, it's largely made up of uh, carbon dioxide, where we have only a very small percentage of carbon dioxide here on Earth. Uh, the, the biology of our Earth has really taken hold of the atmosphere and, and now the atmosphere is dominated, although it has a lot of nitrogen, uh, but the oxygen that, uh, that life produces is, uh, is really uh, the critical change and difference uh, than, than what's happening on Venus. But Venus has so much atmosphere, the stripping that goes on on Venus pales into comparison to what's being generated, probably from from still active volcanoes that are going on. Well, and then Jupiter, of course, the, the king of the solar system has just these intense radiation belts. How did those on Jupiter compare with the ones on Earth? And what did NASA have to do to protect our Juno spacecraft? So indeed, Jupiter, uh, uh, we've known uh, something was going on with Jupiter uh, uh, very early on, before Explorer 1, you know, Bell Labs had uh, taken uh, uh, radio dishes out to, to explore how we could use radio frequency light uh, for communication. And as they were doing that, they saw two bright things in the sky and they fi- figured out one was the sun and the other was Jupiter. Well, the radio emissions from Jupiter were coming from the trapped particles in the intense magnetic field and they were coming from the Jovian radiation belts. Wow. And that field is more than 20 times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty intense and it, it therefore holds very close uh, to the planet some really intense uh, particles that, that uh, spiral back and forth along the magnetic field lines. And so that, that hurts our spacecraft. These particles move so fast, they actually will penetrate the skin and get into the circuits. and and really uh, cause some problems if we don't take that into account. And Juno has that. You know, Juno's yeah. got uh, some it's like really, a bank vault sort it's of. It's got <laughs> this huge vault. That's right. So, so we built this bank vault, if you will, and put all our sensitive electronics in that, and uh, and that's uh, that seems to be working well for us. But has the discovery of the Van Allen belts changed, for example, how we might want to launch a, a rocket? Has it changed how we explore space? No, it really hasn't in the sense that, that um, uh, uh, in planetary science, if there's a place we need to go and we have to go through the belts, we know how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so when we launch and our spacecraft will zoom right through it, um, uh, typically we'll keep all of our experiments off. We'll, we'll make it through the belts and then, and then we'll do the checkout as the spacecraft is cruising in the solar wind. You know, you touched on something that uh, since coming to NASA has really made an impression on me, and that's how interconnected all the sciences that we do, that what we learn about Earth, we can apply to what we're studying on planets like Jupiter and Venus and, and vice versa. So it, it really is important that we we look at all of our, our planets and that by looking at other uh, places in the solar system, we can therefore learn about what might be Earth's future. 
Absolutely. You know, um, uh, the concept that the magnetic field was important to maintain our environment, in particular our atmosphere, uh, is really something that we've, we, we really understand because of Mars and our study of Mars. And, and so uh, uh, then when we look at Venus and we see, well, Venus doesn't have a magnetic field. Why doesn't it have a, a very tenuous atmosphere like Mars? And so now we have to probe and look for other explanations, and we do. We find out that Venus is incredibly an active planet, probably, probably longer uh, than Earth has been in terms of its volcanic activity for whatever reason, and, and we really don't understand or know that. And so it has dumped an enormous amount of CO2 uh, gases, and, and um, we believe it may still be active today doing that. Now, we have actually a moon in the solar system with a magnetic field. What's going on with that? Yeah, well, that's a really neat moon. It's not our moon, although we know enough about our moon to, to realize that it probably had a magnetic field early on in its history. But there's a moon at Jupiter. It's called Ganymede, and it has its own magnetic field. Now, what's really sp spectacular about Ganymede is, uh, you know, we think of moons being smaller objects. Ganymede is huge. And, and Jupiter is, you know, the, the, the big planet on, in our solar system. But just to give you an idea how big Ganymede is, uh, you know, it's bigger than the planet Mercury. It is the largest moon in our solar system, and it generates its own magnetic field. And so it's, uh, it's also uh, has another unique characteristic, and that is uh, it was made in the outer part of our solar system. And it is a icy world. And therefore, because of its interaction with Jupiter's gravity field with tides, we believe a lot of that ice is melted. And inside that beautiful moon, Ganymede is probably an under ice crust ocean. And we believe the ocean's pretty big, you know, may, has, may have more water than we have here on Earth. So ESA has this fantastic mission called JUICE, which is uh, Jupiter Icy Moons Explorer. And it is uh, uh, planned to be launched in 2022 and will arrive at Jupiter in 2029 and begin orbiting Ganymede soon after that. Well, let's talk more about season two. We're calling it mind-blowing science discoveries, things like exoplanets, frozen geysers on Europa and Enceladus, and gravitational waves. You may have heard about that. And recently we had this Rip Van Winkle kind of spacecraft story. It was called Image. Uh, Jim, you were a scientist on that mission. Yes, I was. was. thought to be lost and, and phoned home recently after 13 years. I can't wait to hear that story. Well, I'll say one thing about it, because uh, Image was orbiting the Earth in the Van Allen radiation belts, and, and one day it didn't call home. And that is indeed because we believe the radiation belts uh, uh, really clobbered it. And, uh, and the fact that it, it, it now came back to life is just remarkable. It's, it's, it's a great story. <laughs> and we'd also like to ask for your ideas for future Gravity Assist podcasts. So how can we do that? Well, you can send us an email at gravityassist at nasa.gov. So I really appreciate all your help in pulling these together for me. It's, uh, I can't do it myself. And, and uh, having you interview me for, uh, as a person behind the, behind the scenes has just been a delight. Well, thank you for being my Gravity Assist.